the women that I interviewed who encountered so many barriers and so much sexism and so much discrimination, you know, they said, you might wonder why we put up with it. And they said, because first of all, the work was really fun and it was really important. And we felt, you know, Lisa Harper in particular, she said, I had instances where I got information that I felt nobody else could have gotten. I knew that it found its way to the president and I knew that I contributed to American national security at a very important time. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of the Mo News Podcast. We have a special interview today with Liza Mundy. She's the author of a new book called The Secret History of Women at the CIA. You might be familiar with her previous work, including Code Breakers. Uh, this dives into the fascinating history into the origins of the intelligence surface and the role that women have played through the decades in combating the Soviets, combating terrorism, all the major threats the U.S. has faced and the challenges these women had to face internally to be taken seriously and be given senior roles. Uh, many of us are only familiar with the CIA and the intelligence community through TV shows. And we actually talk about that in this interview about Jessica Chastain and Claire Danes' Carrie Matheson and Carrie Russell in The Americans and how close to reality these Hollywood depictions are. You might be surprised at the answer based on her interviews with people inside the CIA. Among the things I think you'll find most interesting is the role women played in the war on terrorism, recognizing the terrorism issue a decade before 9-11 and how it fell on deaf ears internally in the intelligence community. We also talk about the hunt for bin Laden afterwards and the role women played there. One more thing, Liza Mundy uh, is married to Bill Nye, the science guy. And we actually talk about how her last book, led them to meet and then ultimately get married. And so stay tuned for that anecdote. All right, before we get started here, uh, just to mention that we'd love for you to consider becoming members of Mo News Premium. It's a way to support what we're doing here, support independent journalism. You also get access to a members-only Instagram account where we answer your questions and dive deep into the uh, big stories of the day as well as important moments in history. It also gives you access to interviews like this one early on the members-only podcast. You can join Mo News Premium over at mo.news slash premium at just $7 a month or $70 a year. That is two free months on the annual package. Again, mo.news slash premium to support us today. All right, with that, let's get started. All right, I'm here with Liza Mundy. She's the author of five books now. Yes, this is my fifth. Yeah, so uh, Code Girls, you might be familiar with. The new book is The Secret History of Women at the CIA. We're talking about that today. You take us on a journey here, um, Liza, from the beginning of intelligence gathering back you know, during World War II through the hunt for bin Laden. You start the book, though, by talking about the evolution of the public perception of women in the CIA, especially the last decade, the depictions by Jessica Chastain, by Claire Danes, by Carrie Russell, of uh, the role of women in intelligence. And I guess I want to begin there just because for the vast majority of Americans who are not familiar with intelligence gathering the CIA, our only glimpse at it is through Hollywood. So to what extent in your research here does any of that resemble reality? <laughs> uh, and, and what does that mean? Well, you know, it depends on who you talk to. That's a great question. When I was talking to the CIA's public relations office, hoping that they would cooperate, as they did somewhat uh, in getting me interviews with women who are still with the agency, uh, one of the things that they said was, you know, there are these depictions in Homeland and they're not accurate at all. And so what we really want is to clarify what it's really like to be a women woman CIA officer. And and then I interviewed individual women, including a 
woman, Molly Chambers, who served as an overseas case officer. And these are the real spies. These are the like the fighter pilots of the CIA out there gathering secret information and running operations. And she said, it is just like Homeland. It is just so, it's just so surreal. <laughs> it's so stressful. It's so wonderful. You do. So it sort of, de- it depends on, on how you talk to you. But as I say in the, in the preface to my book, I, you would, you might think if you're a, a devotee of, of spy dramas, that they're, you know, it feels sort of like women are ubiquitous in these dramas now. And, you know, that wasn't the case 20 years ago. James Bond is really what, and of course he's British, but James Bond is what many people grew up with and and a, a dashing man in a tuxedo, you know, skiing down whatever the Alps evading villains uh, or chasing villains is what people think of. So it, you're right. It is. I, I do t- try to tell the whole story of, of how women were serving during the Cold War at a time when you really would not, you know, if you if you watch a lot of James Bond, you get the sense that, well, there are the guys out in the field and then there's Miss Moneypenny back at the desk, sort of keeping the trains running and providing them with gadgets and, and telling them what their schedule is. And, and the truth is just much more rich and fascinating about what women contributed uh, to American espionage. Um, so it did turn into a kind of a, a sweeping multi-generational saga. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it, we've had this pendulum, right? It was it was the men. And now, you know, you can't watch a single spy thriller without it revolving on women. And as we learn as journalists, the truth always lies somewhere in yeah. between. Uh, things are more nuanced. There's shades of gray. I'd love for us to go back to the origins, though, because I found it fascinating. The predecessor to the CIA called the OSS. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, how how did intelligence gathering um, in the U.S. begin? And then to what extent were women involved in, in the origins there? So intelligence gathering in the United States is a much younger field than, say, in Britain. And before World War II, we really had... I mean, it's hard to believe we have 18 intelligence agencies in Washington now. We have intelligence agencies that exist to oversee other intelligence agencies. The Space Force is number 18. But in World War II, we didn't have any intelligence agencies during the Civil War, during the Revolutionary War. You know, there was some spying that went on and there were women, uh, particularly during the Civil War, who were very effective spies in a number of ways. But then during peacetime, those efforts would be largely rolled up. So there was no civilian spy agency, which is something, say, that they had in England for many years before we did. So when we were surprised, just completely surprised by the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, lost more than 2,000 men at Pearl Harbor in this surprise attack, that was a big wake-up call to the United States. It was the event that launched us into World War II. So all of a sudden, tens of thousands of young men are shipping off into the Pacific or crossing the Atlantic on convoys, and they're going to be in harm's way at the exact moment when we really have been put on notice that we don't have any intelligence gathering to speak of. So my prior book, Code Girls, is about the effort to build a code-breaking service in the United States. And ultimately, more than 10,000 women contributed to that effort, came to Washington. Our code-breaking operation was bigger than the British, and more than half of those code-breakers were female. And when we're talking about breaking codes, we're talking about trying to basically figure out how the Nazis are communicating, how the Japanese are communicating. Right, exactly. And people have seen the imitation game. They might be familiar with the German Enigma machine that, that the Germans were using to encipher their messages. And then the Japanese had a whole array of code-breaking systems that we were 
successful at code breaking. So my last book was about that effort and the women who participated. At the time that I was researching that, I knew that there was a parallel cohort of women, again, thousands of women who were recruited into the wartime espionage effort. We had to build a spy service, which is something that we had really never had. And we had to send people overseas to places that most Americans had never even heard of, you know, to remote locations in the South Pacific, uh, to uh, occupied France, uh, which, of course, people had heard of, but to European countries, both allies and and countries that were occupied by the Germans and um, work with local resistance networks, exfiltrate downed allied airmen. And so there were thousands of young American women who were recruited or signed up for that effort. Um, the most famous, although people, many people don't realize this about her biography, uh, was a young graduate of Smith College uh, named Julia McWilliams. And she volunteered for the Navy waves during World War II. And she was too tall for the waves because the Navy had height requirements. And so she ended up working for the OSS, the First American Civilian Spy Service, as a secretary to Wild Bill Donovan, who was the head of that effort. Uh, she was then sent overseas to China on a, on a boat to China, along with some other uh, women, uh, members of the spy service. And she would take some really scary airplane flights in China over mountains and was apparently very cool and collected during those rides when everybody else was sick and, and terrified. And she would meet her husband, a State Department map maker named Paul Child, when she was in China. And then they would get married and they would move to Marseille for his State Department career. She would have an epiphany eating a French meal and uh, become... I think I know where this is going. Become <laughs> Julia Child. Uh, we know her as Julia Child. So uh, but so the war, the war gave us a lot of unexpected benefits. And, uh, you know, a lot of our STEM technology was developed during World War II, uh, our spycraft. And it also gave us Julia Child. So I think you write in the book that about a third of the OSS, which is the predecessor to the CIA, was staffed by women. But in many cases, and we saw this in other aspects of American society, the progress that women make during the war, there's a reversion. Right. After the war, there was an attempt to stuff the genie back in the bottle. And there were literally government newsreels. This, back in the kitchen. Mm-hmm, back like. in the kitchen. Yeah. Right. Stuff the genie back in the kitchen. And there were just as during the war, there had been billboards and posters and magazine ads and and newsreels saying, you know, come into the factories, ladies, Rosie the Riveter. Uh, if you know math, come to Washington and, and join uh, the effort to program computers. And so after the war, the same amount of propaganda is devoted to sending women home, literally saying there was a newsreel that said, ladies, you know, it's time to go back home as you promised and vacate these positions that you occupied for returning GIs. So basically, it was all these men are coming back and they need jobs now. So women, please, you know, hand over, hand the keys. And also there was a cultural sense that this is not where you belong, that the workplace is not where you belong. And the government actually had free government funded childcare, daycare during the war so that mothers could work. But after the war, all of that was shuttered, shut down so that women were, you know, women who wanted to continue working, particularly if they were going to be mothers, had a really hard time finding childcare or just resisting the cultural pressure. Uh, if you got married or if you had children, that your place was at home. So in the 50s, 60s, 70s, how does that manifest itself at the CIA? 
Yeah. So economists have shown, and Claudia Golden, who uh, who recently won the Nobel Prize for her work in economics, has done really pioneering work on this to show that after World War II, the genie wasn't completely stuffed back into the kitchen and that there were women who stayed in the workplace, who found the workplace fulfilling, who needed jobs, women who didn't get married right away. You know, a lot of men died in the war. And so it wasn't as though every woman uh, immediately had a, a husband or a source of support. So there were women who stayed in the workforce because they had to or because they wanted to. And this was certainly true in the government, and it was certainly true in the espionage effort. And so when the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, was created by an act of Congress in 1947, because we realized that we couldn't just shutter, we couldn't shut down our spy service after this war, because we were now entering the, the Cold War in the contest with Soviet Russia and uh, with, with the Soviet Union and other communist countries. Uh, there were women who stayed on with that effort, who insisted upon staying on with that effort. And, and very quickly, the CIA grew to, you know, tens of thousands of, of officers and employees and realized that they needed women. The vision was that the men, again, would be the fighter pilots. They would occupy these top, prestigious, risky, glamorous, covert jobs all over the world, gathering intelligence, working against the communists. And the women would be the desk, they would be the Miss Money Pennies. And they would work back at headquarters, at desks, or sometimes in CIA stations around the world, but again, at desks, and that they would process the intelligence. A lot of people don't think about the way that so you have the spies overseas having these clandestine middle of the night meetings with their sources and assets in other countries gathering this intelligence. But then the intelligence goes back to Langley, to headquarters, the CIA headquarters, and somebody has to keep track of it. And for decades and decades, this was done on three by five cards and they were handwritten or they were typed and it was top secret classified information. We were gathering information on, you know, all sorts of things, but but trying to build a sense of who was who in the Soviet Union, who was who in the Politburo, who was who in the scientific community, who was probably a KGB officer, who knew whom, uh, and and all of this biographical information had to be remembered and archived and kept track of. And so the vision was that it was women who would do that work because it was important, but it was less prestigious. And it was certainly not likely to lead to a top position in what had become a government bureaucracy with a small number of top positions. Yeah, you talk about the view. Men work outdoors, women work indoors. I think that the, the we talked about Hollywood and its depiction of intelligence work. I think it conflates things for people. You don't realize that, you know, there's a whole group of analysts who are analyzing the information coming from humans, but also signals intelligence and, and even reading the newspapers of countries to try to decipher things. Then you have the people in the field. You also have psychological profilers who are trying to build a profile of various leaders to figure out what's going on. And these things tend to get in, uh, conflated and for you know, the ease of television or movies, but these are all very distinct roles, all very important roles. Curious as we're talking about the Cold War here, um, and I don't know how much you got into kind of uh, being able to get a sense of foreign uh, intelligence agencies, but given that this was US v. Russia, you know, US v. Soviets for decades, did you get a sense at all of how the Soviets used women versus how we used women? And as we think about the Cold War and, and the role there? Well, I wouldn't say that the Soviets didn't use women, and uh, and certainly they did. And you know, anybody—well, this of course is a later time period—but anybody who watches *The Americans* knows that their handler is a woman. You know, who's telling them 
what to do and communicating back with Moscow. And so I wouldn't say that the Soviets didn't use women. Certainly, the Soviet spy service was dominated by men. And the Soviets were so certain that the Americans did not use women, that when the decision was made to send a female operative to Moscow, a woman named Martha Peterson, the assumption was, and it was correct, that she would not attract surveillance by the KGB because the KGB would never imagine that an American woman would be sent as a spy to the Soviet Union. Because when American men were sent to Moscow as undercover CIA officers, the KGB by and large knew who they were. They would be there undercover or as diplomats generally, but the KGB was very, very good and it would have tracked these men as they moved from posting to posting around the world, posing as diplomats, and it would have a very good sense of who were actually CIA spies. And they would be surveilled constantly. The apartment would be bugged that they were living in. Uh, There would be cars that followed them whenever they left uh, their apartment or their workplace. And the surveillance was constant because the KGB's mission was to prevent the American spy from communicating with Soviet assets, what are called assets, Soviet officers who were passing secrets to the Americans. Very, very difficult to acquire assets, very, very important to communicate with them and to handle them. And so it was like a cat and mouse game where the KGB wanted to prevent the American spy from communicating with his assets. So he'd be watched at all times, including in his own apartment. And so it occurred to the CIA, finally, to send a woman. And Martha Peterson was not surveilled. And, and because they thought she created this persona of party Marty, a young single woman like, like the Marlo Thomas or Mary Tyler Moore of the spy service, just this carefree single woman who was sent over to work for the State Department, processing visas, not a very important job. And she went to a lot of parties and she traveled around and did tourist, you know, ordinary tourist activities. And, and she fooled them. She fooled them for a number of years. Uh, until her assets cover was blown through no fault of her own. And she was apprehended and um, interrogated in the Lubyanka. And that was the first inkling that the KGB had that the Americans were using women as spies occasionally. Yeah, you write in there that despite, again, a Hollywood depiction of sex appeal and honeypots and, and whatnot, that it was the inconspicuousness of women that allowed them to succeed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's I, fun to think of the, you know, the proverbial honey trap or honey pot. I mean, fun in movies. You know, you you think of, of course, Ursula Andress and some of the famous James, the Bond girls. Uh, and so that's the I think that's the uh, either Miss Moneypenny or the Bond girls are sort of what people think of when they think of women in spycraft. And in fact, the women I interviewed who were case officers. And that is, again, what what we would call a spy. Undercover officers who are sent overseas, often posing as diplomats, but in fact, collecting intelligence. They never, ever used seduction or never, ever had sexual relationships with their foreign assets. Uh, And I mean, one funny anecdote, a woman told me, Lisa Harper, she's in the book, and she was an early Cold War uh, case officer. She said she was working in one African country. She uh, she did a lot of her anti-communist work actually in African countries. And she had an asset. And he said to her, look, Lisa, I've got two wives. 
I've got four mistresses. I, I'm not interested. It, like I've, I've, I've got, I've my, I got my hands full <laughs> with the women in my life already. And, and I think that that was a joke between them because she never uh, used that as a um, as a means of acquiring or handling an asset. She used all sorts of other ingenious strategies, uh, but not the stereotypical one. I found the uh, story of Heidi August in Geneva interesting. You're talking about her role in the 70s and that being a woman, understanding how women are mistreated helped her recruit assets. Explain. Yeah, so Heidi August is just a great example of how the CIA treated women uh, who wanted to work there in the 1970s into the 1980s. So so Heidi actually wrote the CIA back in 1958 when she was 11 years old because she was she had read about it in a weekly magazine and thought it would be a good way for her to live in Paris as a grown up. And uh, and and she got back a brochure saying um, how to be a clerk secretary. Uh, and she was hired as uh, 10 years later as a college senior majoring in political science. She was hired as a clerk secretary uh, when her male colleagues were being hired as case officers, young case officers. And so she spent 10 years as a clerk in CIA stations around the world. She was in Libya. She observed the coup in which Muammar Gaddafi took over that country. She was in Cambodia on one of the last helicopters out of Phnom Penh. Uh, she served in all sorts of dangerous locations. And finally, her male supervisor said to her, you know, you're, you're really too good uh, at this job to just stay a clerk. And, and she was she was made a case officer. And at that time, the the institutional view was that when CIA spies went overseas, that, of course, the people who had valuable information in these foreign countries were men, uh, you know, men in high positions who had access to high level information. But what Heidi knew, based on her 10 years as a clerk, was that clerks and secretaries also had access to all these files. They kept track of the files. They had access to the technology. They ran the communications and the coding machines in foreign embassies. They just, and so she was at the UN. She looked around. She saw all of these women who were employed as clerks and secretaries in foreign embassy offices. And she knew that there was this wave of growing feminism around the world and that these women like her were probably dis satisfied with their, you know, with their lot. And she also knew that revenge is one key reason why people can be recruited to pass secrets from their country. They're pissed off at how they've been treated. They don't like their boss. That's a key psychological motivation to commit treason and pass your country secrets. And so Heidi Heidi told her boss, you know, I think I'm, I'm going to specialize in women. And he said to her, you know, OK, if you want your career to end before it's even started, be my guest. Uh, and as people will find out if they read the book or hopefully when they read the book, you know, she was right. I'm talking to Liza Munda here, the author of The Secret History of Women at the CIA. When it comes to kind of winning the Cold War in talking to the people you're able to speak to, any discernible factoids that uh, kind of play into the history that various female agents or analysts were able to figure out in terms of, you know, the failure of the Soviet Union or what they were up to? Yeah, well, one um, sort of harbinger of what would happen before 9-11 is one of the women who hung on after World War II, Eloise Page, who was this, um, you know, in many ways, she fit the model of the OSS and the early CIA. She came from a very elite background. Uh, the early CIA was referred to as pale, male, and Yale. And she didn't have the male part. She certainly had the pale part. Uh, and she came from the upper classes. So she served during 
during World War II in the OSS. She was Wild Bill Donovan's secretary, and she managed to uh, she managed to rise in the post-war CIA in part because she knew all his secrets. And he, like many men at the CIA, was just a rampant philanderer. He had so many extramarital affairs, and she had the goods on him, as she put it. It works for foreign <laughs> intelligence, but also works for your own uh, yeah. career trajectory internally. Absolutely, and that you know, and that merged over and over again in the book that um, that these women, you know, these women are are operators and manipulators just like the men. And they learn how to use their information and in some cases run operations against the CIA itself. And so Eloise Page rose in the hierarchy, um, not, certainly not as fast as the men, and she was not given a slot overseas for a long time. Uh, she would, But she was put in the um, office that kept track of, of scientists around the world, which is very important both during the war and during the Cold War, during the nuclear contest and the space race. And so she had scientific contacts in the Soviet Union who were telling her that the launch of Sputnik, the first satellite uh, in space, was imminent. And she had very credible sourcing on this. And she wanted to publish a paper because this is what the CIA is supposed to do. All these analysts and these intelligence officers back at headquarters, they write the reports that inform the president so that we're not surprised the way that we were at Pearl Harbor. That is why it exists. So she was saying, you know, the Soviets are going to launch a satellite. This is this is the likely trajectory of the satellite. This is the likely window in which it's going to be launched. And a male gatekeeper at headquarters said, I think you're wrong. I think this is Soviet propaganda. They're telling us they're going to do this, but they don't have the capability. And so she said, okay, we're going to have an intelligence failure and you owe me a case of champagne if I'm right and you're wrong. And so when the Sputnik is launched and it comes as a surprise to the American public and it it really, you know, sets off the space race and leads to a lot of concern in the um, in the American public about the missile gap, the so-called missile gap. Anyway, she gets a lot of champagne in her office from the gatekeeper who didn't believe her. So, I mean, that's one example of the kind of intelligence that some of these women produced that in this, in her case, didn't get listened to. And, you know, when some of the women case officers I interviewed couldn't tell me exactly what information they retrieved, say, from really high-level assets, uh, because they would recruit, even in, or maybe especially in African countries, um, there would be emissaries there from the Soviet Union or from China or from North Korea. These so-called hard targets were often more accessible officers in in, were in African countries as opposed, say, to Moscow. And, and the women that I interviewed who encountered so many barriers and so much sexism and so much discrimination during the course of their spy careers said, you know, you might wonder why we did this work, why we stuck with it. When we were undermined by our own colleagues, we were living in really hardship posts. We were sick. Uh, you know, really, I mean, I mean, serious illnesses, mercury poisoning, E. coli, uh, foreign hospitals. You know, they said, you might wonder why we put up with it. And they said, because first of all, the work was really fun and we were on our own and we had a lot of discretion and it was really important. And we felt, you know, Lisa Harper in particular, she said, I had instances where I got information that I felt nobody else could have gotten. I knew that it found its way to the president. And I knew that I contributed to American national security at a very important time. Uh, so, th so they couldn't always tell me what the information was, um, but it was, it was really a key factor in their motivation to stick with it. I'm glad you mentioned Eloise Page there. She was the, I understand, the first woman CIA station chief in Athens in the late 70s. 
Right. So she rose in part because of her skills, certainly her skills and gifts, but also her tenacity, um, her willingness to not marry and have children. I mean, that's the thing. During the Cold War, that was the great sacrifice that women made to stay stay with the job was that most of them did not marry and almost all of them did not have children. Uh, and so she rose mostly within headquarters, in part her gifts and her talents and also knowing all the secrets of all the men at headquarters. And, and also in many of her positions, she was in charge of budgets. So she was in charge of the budget of the clandestine service, all which is 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 of quite a large budget. And so all these guys who were station chiefs overseas would have to come to her and ask for money, you know, to run these operations. And and they didn't like that she had the power to say yay or nay, that she had this decision-making power over their operations. So they wanted to dislodge her from headquarters. And so at a certain point in her career, when she didn't necessarily want to go overseas, she was pressured. Uh, to go overseas. And she was given the choice of Australia or Athens. And Australia was kind of a a sleepier post with an ally in an allied country. Uh, Athens was a much dicier, uh, dangerous position. A CIA station chief, Richard Welsh, not long before she was sent, was actually assassinated. And so she chose the more difficult. And a young male case officer who worked for her and quite liked and admired her, uh, said that she confided in him that she knew the men at headquarters. They just wanted to get her out of that budget-making position. And they felt sure that she would fall on her face in Athens, that a very male-dominated culture like the Greek political and intelligence culture, that they just wouldn't accept her, that she would fall on their face. And it's what's today. Today, this is known in sort of corporate speak as the glass escalator. The women who are put in leadership positions at a time when a company is failing. And, and the, the assumption is that they'll just fail and they'll take that glass escalator back down, you know, to the bottom floor. And that's, you know, if you read Lean In or if you read Corporate Workplace Social Science, uh, you'll, you'll find reference to that term. It's sort of the opposite of the glass ceiling or it's, you know, another version of the glass ceiling. And so they thought that this would be her great downfall. And in fact, um, she was a woman who had been raised in the tradition of Southern finishing schools. She had enormous social skills. Uh, she was, in fact, you know, quite conservative and um, like the guys at the CIA and anti-communist to a fault. But she she prevailed and she persisted and she quite succeeded in Athens uh, in terms of the Greeks liking her and accepting her and taking her under their wing. Uh, She had to run an operation against male colleagues who wanted to get rid of her in Athens once she did succeed. And I I won't go into that operation because I hope people will read it in the book. And I I, it's such a it's such a delicious anecdote to me that I don't want to I don't want to commit a spoiler. Many, um, you know, of these women are dealing with enemies outside and enemies within here. And we've been talking a lot about the Cold War, but I want to get to the threat, you know, we're still dealing with today, radical Islamic terrorism, Al-Qaeda, the offshoots, etc. You tell the story of uh, Gina Bennett, who appears to be very early on here in identifying the issues. What was she seeing and how was that received within the CIA? Right. So during the Cold War, obviously, the prestige position to have, whether you're an analyst back in headquarters or a spy, is the Soviet Union, the Soviet desk. You want to be on the Soviet account. And yet what we forget often is that in the night, terrorism really started manifesting itself 
in the 1980s. Uh, it's a little bit before that, but it, there were there was a series of plane hijackings and bombings in Europe and the Middle East in the 1980s. People might remember the Achille Lauro. Certainly, people have probably heard of Pan Am Flight One. 103 that exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland. Um, these really scary terrorist attacks that targeted civilians, um, you know, that that led to the deaths of children and families and innocent civilians and, and Americans. And so there was a group of intelligence officers, mostly female, who sort of got shunted into the counterterrorism field at a time when it was it was it was of concern, but it was not on anybody's radar screen as the most important concern. But there were women analysts who were there in part because they got put there. But they were also there because they were really disturbed by this trend and by the willingness of terrorists to kill civilians, to kill children and families. And so Gina Bennett, actually a graduate of UVA, she applied to the CIA and didn't even get an interview, even though she was an expert in Middle East politics and, you know, had all sorts of relevant majors and minors and double majors. And uh, and so she was hired by the State Department as, a, yet again, a clerk typist in an internship type position. She had to wear a skirt. Uh, she had to just sort of type up transcripts of meetings. But after about three months, um, the personnel co- officer called her in and said, you know, you don't belong here. And uh, and she thought she was being fired, and she instead they they promoted her. You know, the, again, that her excellence announced itself, and she was assigned to the terrorism watch desk in the State Department. Again, not a prestigious place to be in the State Department. Uh, in its very small intelligence gathering unit called the um, INR Intelligence Bureau, and so. She had only been on the desk for a few months when Pan Am Flight 103 exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland. And, and a number of the young people who died on that flight were students from Syracuse University who were just a few years younger than she was. So uh, she she started paying close attention to terrorism. And so as early as 1993, Gina noticed that the war in Afghanistan, in which the Soviet Union had been occupying Afghanistan and the CIA had been basically running and arming the resistance to the Soviet occupiers with providing them with Stinger missiles that that downed the Soviet helicopters and ultimately pushed the Soviet Union out of Afghanistan. So that war ended in 1989. But these foreign fighters who had traveled from Arab countries from the Middle East, from Africa, from Indonesia to fight the Soviet infidel to practice jihad in Afghanistan. They weren't going home to their home countries. They were fanning out all over the world and they were communicating with each other. They wanted to keep jihad going. They wanted to continue fighting the infidel. They had been successful. It was perceived in the Soviet Union. They were lauded around the world by fellow travelers. They were confident. They were, they had done a great job as they saw it. They were good at technology. They were trafficking in arms. And Gina started paying attention to this phenomenon. And in 1993, she wrote a remarkable prescient warning about al-Qaeda, about, well, it didn't, it wasn't yet being called al-Qaeda that we knew of, but but about this network of foreign fighters that were going to be a problem and this man who was funding them, Osama bin Laden. And this was a time when the name Osama bin Laden had barely appeared in the Western press. But she was like, right. you know, she was like a detective on a case. She saw this threat emerging at a time when everybody else's attention was elsewhere. 
And, and she began working with a group of female analysts from the CIA who were also paying attention to this threat. And Gina would ultimately come to the CIA about five or six years later. And this team of analysts, again, like Eloise Page with Sputnik, would try to call attention to the threat. As junior female officers in what had become really a massive sort of top-heavy bureaucracy that had still not really taken its eye off the Soviet Union or had not completely figured out what the next threat was. Yeah, it reminded me, I, I mean, I, I read years ago, The uh, Looming Tower, where they talk about the lead up right. and, and the warnings. And and I think you're talking about the I, the group here called the Sisterhood, like Alex Station. They were very early on, they recognized what was happening. And yet it appears that their warnings were falling on deaf ears, or at least there were other priorities uh, for policymakers and the intelligence leaders at that time. That's a great way to put it. That's exactly right. Yeah. So 9-11 happens. And, you know, we, we enter this this next stage. We got to find bin Laden. We got to deal with the war, et cetera. Again, for many of us, our understanding might come from Zero Dark Thirty and the Jessica Chastain character. Um, post 9-11 now, what changes for some of these women at the CA or what doesn't? So there's a chapter in the book that I hope people who read the book appreciate. There's a whole chapter devoted to what it was like for these analysts inside CIA headquarters on 9-11, you know, watching the towers fall on the television screens, watching it on CNN, feeling this enormous sense of failure and shock, inevitability that they had called attention to it, called attention to it, but also this profound fear of, you know, grief, shock, failure, and fear. This headquarters was evacuated except for the people working in counterterrorism who stayed in the building, even though they knew there was a fourth plane in the air. They knew, they knew that there had been efforts, there had been plots to fly planes into the CIA um, in prior years. So they expected that a plane might hit the building and they knew that they were in a, an office that was particularly vulnerable and they stayed at their posts, even though they were just at any time they thought a plane might plow through the building and they, you know, they called their husbands, they called their children. So they were wrestling with this, just this, amazingly complex series of emotions, failure, vindication, but uh, fear, uh, care for their families, but then this urgent, urgent need to protect any uh, attacks, a second wave of attacks. I mean, I was in D.C. on 9-11. I picked up my young children from elementary school. We were all poised for a second attack. You know, what else is out there? Who else? What else is coming? It's this very strange time. I remember I was a student at GW at the time and we would empty out on weekends because there was a rumor another attack was happening. Right, right. And, 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 and the whole country felt that. I mean, the terrorism, they did exactly what terrorists want to do. Every city thought the Seattle Space Needle, the Astrodome, whatever, you would think of what a landmark in your city was going to be was going to be vulnerable. And so these women were dealing with all of these emotions, depression, anxiety, but also this urgent. They, they were the only ones with the skills to try to prevent now this perceived second wave. So they were sleeping on cots. They weren't seeing their loved ones. They, they you know, they were scrambling for child care, those, those people who had children and families. And by now, many of them did. Many of the women from Alex Station did. And so what did change at the CIA was the realization that that these ground level analysts were the ones who really knew this new kind of intelligence analysis, terrorism analysis, that they had been doing it, that they had been trying to make their voices known, that often their managers who had come from different desks didn't, didn't really understand this. And there were a couple of key meetings that George Tennant wrote about in which the Bush White House heavyweights came to meetings and the managers were like, we don't quite know, you know, they were... 
that when the Bush administration was determined to go to Iraq and to sort of pivot from Afghanistan to Iraq, there were some key meetings, many meetings where they were pressuring the CIA to provide justification. But the managers often didn't have the ground level knowledge that the ground level analysts did. So Tenet and others began bringing these women into the key meetings. And we should mention George Tenet was CIA director from 97 to 04. So before and after 11. And that's a long time to be a CIA director. And it's a long time. And by the way, to be the CIA director, having been there several years before 9-11 and still holding the position after the fact. No, absolutely. You're absolutely right about that. And so the women increasingly were listened to as they began to, you know, again, we so we go to war in Afghanistan. We think we're going to get bin Laden. They don't get bin Laden. He, he uh, escapes from the Battle of Tora Bora. And all of these terrorists who had come to Afghanistan now disperse all over the world. And as Gina Bennett put it, we got to find them all over again. And so they're using these skills that they've been developing for a number of years now, using signals, intercepts, um, communicating with people who know people who know people, figuring out how if one terrorist in Indonesia is communicating with another in Africa and they're communicating with a known bomb maker. And even if you can't read their communications, just knowing that they're communicating a lot, a lot, a lot you know, leads them to understand that a plot is being hatched. And so they spend years refinding these guys, apprehending and detaining. And of course, then the detainee program develops very quickly. Right, we deal with CIA black sites and torture and Guantanamo. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. And, and some of the women from Alex Station participated in those interrogation programs. And that, of course, is what you see uh, in Zero Dark Thirty, Jessica Chastain's character. She's the expert analyst during an interrogation session. That's how the movie begins. And she's based on a real person, yes? She is based on a real person. And and it's my understanding that she is based on a real person, even though the CIA says that she's based on sort of a composite character. But it is true that there were many people doing that same work, and there were a number of women uh, doing that work. And so that is one of the, you know, it was, it was a very difficult time. Obviously, it was a very difficult time. And one of the things that really changed for CIA analysts and operatives is that a lot of this work is lethal. I mean, you're either detaining terrorists to interrogate them or to stop them from an attack, but really to get information out of them. And and for a number of years, that is primarily what detainees are, what's done with detainees. You kidnap them, detain them and try to get information. But also when the drone program begins, um, you know, targeting for uh, for elimination, you know, for deaths or for, for bomb strikes or for drone attacks, for targeted drone attacks. And so if you're a targeter, uh, which is this this new field at the CIA that um, and that's what the character of Maya is. She's a targeter. Uh, you have to wrestle with the cost, the human cost, you know, that a human life may be taken as a result of your work. And so I have some chapters in the book where I talk about the moral calculus that many women had to and men had to wrestle with the sort of work that's being done in Iraq and then all over in Afghanistan and all over the world. It's a new kind of moral calculus. And, uh, you know, people quit who didn't want to do this. And, and there was there was not unanimity of feeling about this in, you know, among women, or among CIA officers. There were women in the book who said, I'm just not going to do this. You can't make me. I'm not going to work on Iraq. I'm not going to work in the detainee program. And one of the things I also try to show in the book is that there were, you know, we do fixate, as morally we should, on the interrogation program, on the waterboarding. But there were counterterrorism involved so many other sorts of operations as well. And one of the women I, I that readers will meet toward the end of the book, a woman named Molly Chambers, who signed up 
well after that program had ended, but who was motivated by the 9-11 attacks and the new world that she felt she was growing up in. Um, she was fighting terrorism. All these terrorist groups that, that come into existence, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, ISIS, uh, many of which are franchises of Al-Qaeda. And, you know, just like a franchise, they're using the videography, they're using their recruiting techniques, they're, te- you know, they're sort of paying or be getting money from this central organization. But um, Mali was fighting al-Shabaab in Africa, trying to protect African citizens who are so vulnerable to these terrorist attacks that may be targeting Americans, but are taking the lives of African citizens as well. And one of her missions when she's overseas is to bring home the Nigerian schoolgirls who've been kidnapped by Boko Haram. So she's both doing work against hard targets, the traditional hard target countries of Russia, North Korea, China. Um, but she's also fighting counterterrorism that's become this web of organizations around the world. So it's not all the kind of work that you see in um, Zero Dark 30, although Molly's the one who said to me, like, it was just like Homeland. I mean, your life was just so crazy. <laughs> all right. So you hear it here first, folks, that Carrie Matheson is closer to reality than some yes. will, than some will yes. admit. <laughs> According to my sources. I was struck by a comment um, Gina Bennett makes towards the end of the book that the foreign terrorists can kill Americans, but the real threat is internal, is the people who are willing to tear down systems. Right. So I was doing my a lot of my interviews in the aftermath, I would say, of the Trump administration. January 6th. Right. In January 6th. And, and, and even before January 6th, the former president's really sort of war against the intelligence community and distrust of the deep state and war against any sort of diversity, equity and inclusion efforts. Uh, Even though, you know, the value of inclusion was approved during World War II, it was proved during the hunt for bin Laden, which would not have succeeded without the participation of the Mayas. Uh, There was such distrust, such antagonism within the intelligence community that at a certain point, CIA director Gina Haspel, who we should note, by the way, the first woman to run the agency. The first woman to run the agency and was appointed by Trump, but he made her life so difficult and the lives of intelligence officers so difficult that at one point she there was basically kind of a poison pill pact at the CIA that if 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 she was fired, that the whole workforce would would resign as well. So the officers that I interviewed were <laughs> who had been there since before 9-11, you know, were coping with with so much by then, uh, so many conflicting experiences and emotions that Gina in particular was just really disheartened by what she was seeing, you know, with January, the January assault on Capitol Hill and attempt to subvert the election. Uh, just feeling very dispirited by what was happening within America. That Right, just as she said, you know, terrorists could just kill Americans, but they couldn't kill democracy. I will say, though, that I, I interviewed other longtime Cold Warriors like Lisa Harper, who still believed, I mean, she too had been out there protecting American embassies, teaching African citizens how to keep themselves safe during the counterterrorism period. She actually came out of retirement. Uh, to serve the counterterrorism effort. And she continued to believe that democracy would stand, you know, that we had the tools to to withstand that, that we had weathered a lot during the course of her, you know, 50 something year career. And she said, you know, if I, if they wanted me to come out of retirement today, she's almost 80. I would do it in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. It was um, heartening to talk to her about her love for the work and, you know, her commitment to the work even now and the mission. 
the book is thorough. It's fascinating. Uh, I feel like there's a, sub, a couple screenplays yeah. you could sell off of it, Liza. Uh, but before we close here, some of some people listening, many people listening, might be familiar with your husband, Bill Nye. And there's an interesting story I read, if you could confirm it, about how you first met related to your last book. So my last book, as I said, was about wartime code breakers. Um, one of them was Bill Nye's mother, Jacqueline Jenkins Nye, who was recruited out of Goucher College, very fine women's college uh, at the time in Baltimore, Maryland. And I actually, <laughs> I couldn't, I tried to interview him when I was researching the book and um, was unable to get through his agent. But <laughs> and, I, and I will say that by the time I finished it, I'm quite sure that I knew more about what his mom did than he did. And he'll, he'll, he'll acknowledge that mm. as well. Uh, through my research. And so, but after the book was published, he was, somebody asked him for his 10 favorite books. And he, uh, he said, he, na he named it as one of his 10 favorite books and mentioned that his mom was mentioned in it. And so I, my publisher appreciated that and I appreciated it. And someone, one of his mom's classmates actually, who was also in the code-breaking effort, got married during the war. His mom was um, in her wedding party wearing her naval dress whites. Uh, she was a Navy code breaker. And um, I just asked my editor to send it to him as a thank you, you know, to say thank you for that mention. And here's a photo of your mom that you might not already have. Uh, and we corresponded and he was coming to Washington and we ended up getting married. <laughs> and so one of the things I told my editor, I had the same editor on this book, and I said, you know, I hope this book is well received, but I, I don't need a new husband to come out of the publication <laughs> of this book. Like, I'm, I'm good that in that regard. <laughs> And uh, now you're married, what, a year and a half? Got married at the Smithsonian. Congratulations. Thank you. Love that story. Um, love the book. Liza, thanks for the conversation. Um, thanks for delving into this subject. And um, hope to have you back sometime soon. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on your family edition. Thank you. All right, as we conclude here, just a thank you again to Liza Mundy. You can find her book, The Secret History of Women at the CIA, wherever you get your books. We have a link in the show notes in this podcast episode as well. If you just want to click through, how could you not after that fascinating interview? So many great anecdotes we weren't able to get to in the interview, but you can read more in her book. All right, before we go here, I uh, want to mention again, Mo News Premium. It's a way to support what we're doing, support uh, more interviews, more in-depth coverage, support our podcast, support our newsletter or support uh, Instagram and just support independent journalism. It also gives you access to an extra members only podcast where you get early access and exclusive episodes, as well as a members only Instagram account where we answer your questions and we do deep dives on the news. You can find information on Mo News Premium over at where else? Mo.news slash premium, where you can join today for just $7 a month. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.